Welcome. This is week number 44 for the week of October 30th through November 5th. Guy Fox Day. Uh, Gunpowder Treason Day. Go look it up. You'll be you'll be excited to to read about that, I'm sure. Um, this is week 44. Thank you for joining us. This is Reading Through the New Testament with Pastor Spencer. We are this week reading Hebrews chapter 12 through James chapter 3. As we walk through the New Testament scriptures, learning about um, what they teach us about who our God is, who our Savior is. We are heading towards the end, aren't we? Um, we have made it a long way. And, um, you know, we've got some, uh, what, 52 weeks left, less than 10 weeks now um, before we finish the New Testament. It's been quite a ride. Um, there's some stuff in the uh, works now that I'm working on, um, potentially trying to uh, read through part of the Old Testament next year. Um, more about that will be coming. Um, but yeah, it, it, this has been a lot of fun um, as we've uh, meditated, thought about the New Testament scriptures, and, and just considered what we can learn from them and what they uh, teach us. I hope it's been a blessing to you and continues to be um, as, we, as we go forward. This week, like we said, we're in Hebrews chapter 12 through uh, Hebrew through uh, James uh, chapter 3. And uh, so we're wrapping up Hebrews. Real quick, I'll give you a little bit of info about James, um, uh, you know, the, the book of the letter, and then we'll start reading through some of the material about what we can learn from these chapters. Uh, James, of course, as we open up, um, that was the the book that we went through for our men's conference in August. James was the son of Joseph, the half-brother of Jesus. So he's Jesus' half-brother through Mary. Um, And so we are hearing from a man who was an important leader in the early church, not an apostle, but he's mentioned, for instance, in in, uh, Acts chapter 15, where he plays an important role in the uh, Jerusalem council there. Uh, where it was decided that actually the Gentiles do not have to become Jews uh, in order to be saved or have equal rights and uh, privileges within the church of Jesus Christ. And so James is there. He's a leader in, in, in Jerusalem. He's a pastor of that church. And he's writing this letter. This is one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament. It's written around 45 AD. So fairly fairly early on it's written it might be written from Jerusalem because remember James is associated with Jerusalem and he seems to be writing to Jewish Christians who have been persecuted and driven outside of Jerusalem they've been spread out um, he opens up and uh, and describes them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion um, where they are scattered uh, everywhere. So he's writing this letter to them. Perhaps these are people that were part of his flock back in Jerusalem. They're now finding themselves persecuted. And he's writing this letter to them to encourage them, uh, to call them to uh, live the Christian life, even outside of Jerusalem, where they're at, and to live it in a way that honors the Lord, um, to, uh, to have a faith that works, that doesn't simply say it believes stuff, but doesn't have a different life and also calls them uh, to, uh, to in, in many ways, one of the themes is, is not to show preferential treatment to the rich or to those who have status. 
So uh, James is here is calling these people. We, we had our, our theme of our conference was faith that works. And that's really the overall, if you wanted to give one major theme from James, I think that would be an appropriate one. So that's what James is about. But before we get there, let's wrap up Hebrews and then we will go into James. Uh, last week, you'll remember I read from uh, some resources that I found um, online from a website called 1517.org. Um, and it is a, a website that is uh, produced by um, you know Lutheran brothers and sisters in, our, in the Lord um, that, that produce uh, stuff there. They've got um, these, these papers that are really actually written for people to help uh, pastors who are preparing sermons. But the material is so good that I, I decided to take it and make it into a devotional uh, usage for us. And, and I have edited them. Um, I don't know how much I've edited these, uh, today, but they have been edited at least, um, in the past they were, and, and we'll see today, but, um, uh, just for our purposes as a Baptist church, because obviously we are not Lutherans, even though we share the most important things like Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. Faith alone is the way we receive Jesus. Um, uh, we are saved by grace alone, not because of our works. Those big doctrines we we share um, with our Lutheran brothers and sisters in the Lord, although we differ from them, uh, for instance, on baptism and uh and what exactly is going on and who should be baptized and things like that. Uh, those are real differences, but they are not differences that mean um, that we can't have good fellowship in the Lord and learn from each other. So the first thing I'm going to read from is uh, from a guy named John Bombaro. You can look this up online. Um, it's about Hebrews chapter 12. He's a missionary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, and he actually is the assistant director of theological education at the Luther Academy, Riga, Latvia. Um, so this is who I'm going to be reading uh, pertaining to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, later on um, in James, I believe it is, yeah, and then it, we're going to have another thing from John Bombaro and then another thing in James from uh, Bob Hiller, whom we learned about last week, um, who is a co-host on the White Horse Inn. Um, again, these are these are things that we're, we've, we're using, and I, I found them to be helpful, and I hope you will um, as well. So in the book of Hebrews, um, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 is wrapping up his, his message to them. This is almost a sermon, isn't it? We've talked about, um, well, last week, you remember, um, we kind of, and uh, we've, we've, we've talked about the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrifices, and he's greater than the law. Well, here in Hebrews chapter 12 now, the writer is kind of uh, wrapping up his message, wrapping up what really is in many ways a sermon, and he has this to say in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Uh, John Bombaro has to say has this to say um, on this passage. He says the text asks us to think of the Christian life as a race. Let us run with perseverance. It says the race that is set before us. 
Certainly this race must be run with perseverance, for it is a marathon among marathons, an endurance event par excellence. We were entered in this race at our baptism, Hebrews 6.4, and it will not be completed until the finishing line is reached at death. Let us run with perseverance the race set before us. The metaphor of a race is a universally applicable device. Everyone can relate to and or has participated in some kind of race. When we think of a race, we tend to imagine a competitive event. The aim of a race is to cross the finish line first, to beat the fastest competitor, to outdo our rivals. But the race which is set before us as Christians, the preacher goes on to say, is different. Every metaphor breaks down, and here it quickly reaches its limit. We as Christians cannot improve our position by hindering the others on the same course. For us, there can be no elbowing on the bends or struggling for the best track, and no hoping our fellow athletes will not perform well, for we are not competing against our brothers and sisters in this common struggle. As a matter of fact, we are not competing with anyone in the ordinary sense. We make better progress by encouraging and helping them with every step, for we need each other as members of a team. In our life, we are not racing against others, but mostly against ourselves. So this image of our lives as a spiritual race raises some questions for us. Where is this race going? Where is its finishing line? Why should it be a struggle to run this race? What is preventing us from finishing well? Against whom are we struggling? What is the prize or goal? How do we run to win? What coaching do we need? Where is this race going? What are we aiming for? Jesus answered these questions when he told us, Strive to enter by the narrow door, Luke 13, 24. Our strivings in this race must be directed towards entering the kingdom of God through the narrow door of faith. Christ is the door, John 10, 9. But if we enter the kingdom through faith, that is, if we are united to Christ by faith, why must we strive when faith must be placed in Christ's strivings alone and never in our own? Why run the race when the doctrine of grace tells us our Lord will carry us right over the line if only we let him do it in trust? I do not present this as a question of passing interest. I believe it is a real dilemma and it can be a dangerous one in the minds of many believers. I knew a young man who said he was a Christian, though he was not prepared to live a Christian life because he reasoned being a Christian hinges on what you believe, not on what you do. Actually, he was quite right about that. I imagine St. Paul encountered the same kind of thinking in Rome and Corinth, to judge by the letters he wrote to the churches in those places. For example, in his letter to the Roman Christians, immediately after he had explained about the free gift of God's grace and how all sins are forgiven without any cost to us, Paul raises the obvious question which must have been on everyone's mind. He asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course, if any sin can be forgiven for Christ's sake, why not sin all the more and be forgiven all the more? As Michael Horton rhetorically quips, I like to sin. He likes to forgive. It's a perfect arrangement. But the apostle goes on to explain why this is impossible for the Christian who has died to sin in baptism and is now raised to walk in new life. This is what my young man did not understand. There is justification, yes, but with it, there is the regeneration of the human heart. Consider the word of God. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, and Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. My friend's fault was not in his logic, which was perfectly sound, and not in his mind, but in his heart. He said he was a Christian, but his heart was elsewhere, not moved and motivated by the real voice of God in his real presence. My friend was not owning the truth that he belonged to another kingdom with a different kind of ruler, and there is, in fact, an ethic to this kingdom. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Why strive to do the work we cannot do well enough, but Christ has already done on our behalf? There is one reason. The narrow door is the door of faith where all our hopes and destiny are centered in Christ. Good works and a good life will not advance us one inch towards the goal. But bad works, and I include among bad works the neglect of good ones, and a rebellious life will hold us back because they are destructive to faith. This idea is central to the text which tells us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us in order to run with perseverance the race set before us. To put it another way, faith needs the exercise. Faith needs to see with clarity, which is why we must have the gospel constantly preached to us. And it needs to know that before us has gone a great cloud of witnesses to a forsaking all for faith kind of life. Faith is not a thing which can be stored away in some remote corner of the subconscious and whipped out for an airing every Sunday for an hour or so. It is also not just when there is an an atypical crisis and we find we cannot manage without it convenient crisis faith, but otherwise left undisturbed until it can be cashed in on judgment day. Faith, if it is alive, takes us through a constant cycle of repentance and renewal. The preacher and Paul chose the image of a race because it is an active one, full of vitality and effort. But why must we strive? What is holding us back that we need to run the race with perseverance? There is a prevailing headwind we must run against. If I might adapt the image of the text slightly, think of the race set before you, your life, that is, as a boat race. Remember how you are competing against yourself. The follower of Christ, then, is rowing against a very strong tide. We must persevere to make progress in the right direction when the world we live in is pushing us a different way. But such is the world we live in. It is one of which Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2. It is an existence where St. Peter warns us to be sober and watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8-11. And when we struggle against such a strong tide, we are competing only against the weakness of our own limbs. As Jesus said, the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Would it not be easier to sit back as a spectator in this arena? What prize does the race hold for us? It is a race of endurance to persevere in the faith. Jesus has promised he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10, 22. Paul has assured us if we endure, we shall also reign with Christ. Though if we deny him, he will also deny us. 1 Timothy 2, 12. The stakes in this race are the highest imaginable. Finally, we turn to the coaching this text offers us. How do we run to win? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
and let us run with perseverance. It is obvious any athlete running with excess weight or with some unnecessary impediment is at a great disadvantage. A serious runner works to keep the weight down so their stamina will last longer. Of course, the weight of normal clothing is shed in favor of shorts and a light vest. Boots make way for track shoes. Consequently, the Christian also lays aside excess weight for the race we face. One keen observer of that race has made these observations. He writes, The reason for faltering steps are the weights that hold men down. The contender who is not stripped of impediments is hampered by those weights. The concerns, the selfish interests, and the habitual sins which he is loath to leave behind. His weakly sanctified life and crawling pace are evidence he is not facing the sins that plague him nor battling them. Unbridled sin has its own hidden law of gravitation that at every stage pulls its victim a little farther downward. Being so weighted down, the victim cannot run, he cannot walk, he can barely crawl. After frequent defeats, the willpower to resist is gone. The centuries of conscience that stand at the dividing line of right and wrong have been pushed aside, and some very dangerous spots are being crossed. Thus, the sanctified life becomes gradually weaker. The victim consoles himself with the unquestionable, with the unquestionable fact that all are sinners, and in his mind all seems right again. What are some of these weights or habitual sins? They are sins of the tongue, cursing and gossiping, covetousness and greed. They are fear and doubt, for since they show distrust of God, they surely are terrible, besetting sins. These weights are self-centeredness, material-mindedness, dishonesty, prejudice, lovelessness, self-righteousness, and Pharisaism. From all who persist in these sins, God calls for a contrite and broken heart. No matter how pet sins may be explained away, no matter how people will excuse themselves for their outbursts of the flesh, such sins are a distinct hindrance and roadblock to faithful discipleship. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 The battle is not so much recognizing sins as admitting them. It is also not so much about confessing them as repenting them or laying them aside. But we can do it. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the starter and finisher of our race, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Looking to Jesus, who ran the race before us, perfectly. Jesus is the all-time record holder of perseverance and endurance, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. As Jesus endured the cross, those who stood by him said, Come down from the cross, and we will believe. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Mark fifteen thirty through 31 Here was Jesus plumbing the depths of disgrace, dying without dignity, and defeated by a mob. But none could understand that here was Jesus sprinting to the finish, running with perseverance for the line, thundering without weight or impediment down the home straight. If he had saved himself, if he had come down from the cross, he would not be the perfecter of our faith, nor would he be its pioneer. For what could we have faith in? But he went on until he could say, It is finished. He crossed the line, and on the other side, he calls you to finish in his strength. Press on, press through. That is uh, John Bombaro there about the the metaphor of the race, and I thought that was a, that's a very 
powerful, I think, image, isn't it? Um, as we reflect on that, as we think about that, pressing on, keep going, looking to Jesus, who's the record holder of the race, and to lay aside the sins. I, I That was very good what he said. The, the solution is not simply to recognize our sins, but to confess them, and not simply to admit them, but to lay them aside, to repent of them. And that's what repentance is. It's in faith, looking to Jesus and now laying aside the, the sins that so closely cling to us. And we need to reflect upon that every day, don't we? God's grace is sufficient to us to enable us to put these things away and to help us to run the race, to endure, to persevere, to bear up, to go through, to press through the difficult times so that we will be able to run this race through this world and arrive safely on the other shore. That's what we're doing. This really is a cross-country, a a cross-world race where we are running from this world and running to the next because Jesus has brought us safely and will bring us safely all the way across. So next we want to turn now to James, right? The writer to the Hebrews is wrapping up 12, 13, and now we turn our attention to the the letter of James. Again, this is from, I believe, John Bombaro here again, but this is from James uh, chapter 1 because we we open up with James, and James is a book of many people really enjoy because of its practical nature. And he opens up here in verse 12 and says this of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So let's listen here to what we can think about as we go through these opening chapters now of the book of James, and let's reflect upon what we can learn from these verses. Uh, John Bombaro writes this, Although verses 12 through 18 stretch over two different paragraphs, they sustain the theme of tested faith. James makes it clear he is talking about Christian trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As the conversation advances, verse 12 concludes what preceded it, declaring, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The content comports in the very same vocabulary provides closure to verses 2 through 11. Still, it is a good launching point into verses 13 through 15, since the teaching deals with trials. James first sets the parameters for all discussions regarding theodicy. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The doctrine and explanation flink each other in this verse. The what and the why are right there. While God may and does test one's faith in life, yet he does not tempt with sin. He does not allure and entice toward ungodliness, but rather permits and provides avenues for the testing, that is, the strengthening of faith. Why? Why test faith? Think of any engineering project. Engineers put things to the test to ensure it can withstand greater and greater trials. For us, the greatest trial will be death, that is, 
actually dying. Faith must be strong because it seems like death has the last word. But it does not. Christ does. To believe and live by that requires faith. Such faith is not merely for ourselves, but to also help those we love to face the same. It is the iron of faith sharpening iron. Faith must be strong because it seems like death has the last word. Temptation, however, is another story. Verse 14 discloses the origins of temptation, the sinful self. Inordinate self-love, self-justification, self-gratification, and self-aggrandizement, yes, these come from our own desires. The consequences follow. Then desire, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Those are ungodly desires, sin and death. Missing from this trajectory is faith in the Christ who redeemed us and gave us his spirit so we might not be deceived by the things that lead to sin and death. Abiding in the word and walking in the spirit is the truth and walking in the spirit is the antidote to the poison of sinful desires. Thus, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. The good and perfect gifts of God are summarily the Son and the Spirit. The good gifting of God is a, re- is a result and revelation of His character. He is the promise-making, promise-keeping God, always. There is a Trinitarian theology of gift to be explored here in the same way there is a Trinitarian theology of communication. It is what theologians call a first theology, something basic to understanding God and the phenomena of creation and redemption. The giver, the gift, the given. The perfect giver, God the Father, gave the perfect gift, God the Son, through the perfect means conceived of God the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The perfect one comes as perfection through perfection. And God gives the good and perfect gifts to us and for us. Therefore, verse 18 declares, it is from the love of God and of his own grace that he saves us in the way of truth, dispelling all deception and temptation. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God wants us or better desires us to be his own. So he liberates us by the truth. Christ is that truth. So too our sanctification, the opposite of sinful desire, is by the truth. So, as we've thought about this right here, right, as we consider um, facing temptation, we combat temptation with truth and with God's goodness. And now, as we turn our attention to James chapter 2, um, we're going to read something from Bob Hiller, which is now going to really address and helpfully help us think through that age-old question, what is the relationship between faith and works? Right? What is that relationship? Is James contradicting Paul? Um, are we justified? Are we made right with God because of what we do as much as what we believe in Christ? Or are we saved by a gift received through faith alone? What is it that saves us? How are we saved? What is the means? What is the foundation? How do we put James and Paul together? And we're going to talk a little bit about that now. This is Bob Hiller in James chapter uh, 2. He says this, In Ephesians, St. Paul gives us the heart of the gospel and pulls no punches. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The entire Christian life, salvation, faith, good works, all of it, is a gift graciously given on account of Christ. We are reminded of Paul's words to the Romans, and to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Salvation and justification are ours all by God's gracious work in Christ alone. There is nothing else for us to trust. Enter James in the great justification debate. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James 2.14. Wait a second. I thought Paul just established that faith apart from works saves. Is James contradicting Paul? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2.17. What gives? Which is it? Is it faith alone or faith plus works? Is it Paul or James? Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Upon closer examination of Paul and James, I think we will find there is no contradiction whatsoever. Both claim faith is that which alone receives salvation. But faith is not created nor given to be idle. Faith, apart from works, saves and justifies because it trusts Christ alone for salvation. In no way is James claiming Christ's saving work is insufficient and needs supplementation from our feeble works. That is not James's fight. Consider Luther. Faith is a divine work in us and makes us to, makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different people in heart and spirit and mind and all powers, and it brings with it the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. Thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. Luther, Paul, and James agree. Faith which trusts Christ alone for salvation cannot help but work, but that is precisely the problem for James. He is dealing with a congregation using God's gratuity in Christ as an excuse to withhold love from the poor and to favor the rich. The congregation fawns all over the wealthy, making sure they feel important and valued, while at the same time shoving the poor off to the side. They are boasting of their faith in Christ Jesus, while they are disregarding those Christ loves. Blessed are you who are poor, says Jesus. The congregation of James's address responds, Sure, but we are blessed by that rich dude. James says, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you to court? And the congregation responds, Yeah, but just think how they'll help our church's reputation and draw a crowd. James, in his typical fashion, will not hold back with the law on such sin. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Where James was working against the devil or excuse me, where Paul was working against the devil to convince his congregations that they cannot add to their justification with their works. James is fighting the same devil who is trying to convince this congregation Christ's justifying work gets them out of loving their neighbor. Both are equally demonic. Both are equally sinful. Both despise God's word. Paul's church dismissing the gospel. James is dismissing the law of love.
both dismiss the work and love of Christ. Where is Christ in this text? He is in the poor and hurting neighbor in your congregation, Matthew twenty-five forty. Christ identifies with his body, the church. To sin against the church, then, is to sin against Christ. What is more, to act according to a theology of glory that exalts in money and status at the cost of your brothers and sisters who are hurting or suffering in any way is to act in the opposite way of Christ. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Christ chooses the weak, the poor, and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29 Christ is not to be found for those who reject the hurting, struggling, ailing sinners whom he has baptized and loves with an everlasting love. He will not abide by those who snap bruised reeds and snuff out smoldering wicks. For those who are poor and hurting, burned by the by church people, Christ has no condemnation for them. He has chosen them, shed his blood for them, and given all things for their salvation. If the church fails to follow suit, they will answer to Christ. He, however, never fails to be faithful to his word. He is there to heal, forgive, and restore. James and Paul agree this love from Christ not only saves and justifies, but forms our love for one another. Well, that's a great way, I think, to uh, wrap up this podcast there. You'll notice some consistent themes, don't you, in Hebrews and James as we've continued to read through them. The theme of endurance, perseverance, and also of uh, the fact that even though times can get tough and we have trials, that does not excuse us from whether it be in Hebrews, neglecting to meet together, or the uh, the idea of maybe going back to false ways of religion, or in James, it doesn't excuse us from uh, to uh, to favor the rich or to show partiality, or to um, backbite and hurt one another or to sin. Trials and temptations come our way not in order to give us an excuse or an opportunity to sin but they are an opportunity for us to grow in Christ, to be conformed to Christ, and to know his power and his resurrection power and his cross power in ways that we did not know before. In our weakness, his strength is shown. In our humiliation and in our struggles and in our trials, his grace is more than sufficient, super sufficient to us. And we receive it by faith, by trusting that what he's told us, he's true to, and he will keep his promises to us. And when God speaks to us, it's true. That is really the main difference between a believer and unbeliever, isn't it? We just believe that God God has told us some, given us promises and calls us away from sin to trust in him. And, and that's, that's a true word. And we don't want to be those who reject that word, but who receive that word and let it be implanted within us so that we can bear fruit to God and uh, live as his beloved children. Well, next week we're going to continue in the book of James. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, and then we will be diving into First Peter. First Peter So thank you for listening. Take care. God bless.